Welcome to the e-commerce profitability show, a podcast by Link My Books. We speak with profitable e-commerce store owners and experts to help your e-commerce business become profitable because revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. I'm your host, Dan Little. Welcome to the e-commerce profitability show. Joining us today is Mark Chellingworth, the founder and CEO of Apostle Shoes, who offer luxury shoes without the luxury price. But Mark isn't your average entrepreneur. He's not only does things differently with his own business, but he arrived at this point in his career after spending 15 years as an investment banker analyzing companies. From a financial point of view, this has perhaps helped him skip some of the lessons a new founder might normally have to learn the hard way. Let's see how some of his e-commerce insights can help you. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Right, okay. So jumping straight in here, what was it that made you turn away from working as an investment banker and to what you do now? So I set the business up a few years ago while still working before COVID. And it sounds a bit grandiose to say it, but it's sort of not quite out of necessity, but out of frustration, perhaps. The business started with shoes and now does shirts, but buying shoes was just getting increasingly expensive and the quality was just deteriorating. And it turns out that most of the best shoes in the world are made in Northampton. And they're, they're the brands you'd recognize. So Churches, Cheney, Crockett, Barker, Loke. And what happened is, well, a while ago now, those businesses were all taken over by luxury goods companies. So a while ago, 20 years, say, you know, your average banker, broker, lawyer, accountant, dentist, GP would have shopped in these places. And you could buy a really good quality pair of shoes and they'd last for an awfully long time. You know, I had colleagues who'd had theirs for 20 years. And I could never quite bring myself to spend that much money on a pair of shoes because they were at the time, they were sort of three or 400 pounds. And so I'd go and buy a cheaper pair and that cheaper pair would then fall apart within a year. And so I'd buy another cheaper pair and every year I was buying a pair of shoes for a hundred pounds. And that just struck me as madness. And so I looked into it and yeah, as I say, they're all made in Northampton. Northampton's got a small town. And whilst they're all a little bit like Kellogg's, they claim they don't make shoes for anyone else. They actually do. And the other main sort of principle is the business is that I only do the best seller. Yeah. So most people will own a pair of black Oxfords, probably if they own any black formal shoes, that's been the sort of most popular shoe for the last, I don't know, hundred years. And yet if you go into any of those shoe shops, they, they sell all sorts of stuff. And that really there as, as marketing, nobody actually buys any of that stuff. So I figured if I could just do the best seller and I could sell it direct, then I could do it for much less. And this was around the time that the whole direct consumer e-commerce space was exploding. So you had sort of Dollar Shave Club, Harry's Razors, Bonobos, Warby Parker, all recognizing that if you just sold directly, you could remove the costs of staff and rates and rent and, and so on. And I took that to an extreme and just did the best selling product. So I went up to Northampton, sourced the product. My product is I would claim identical to the best-selling shoe. And then the interesting thing that's happened in the intervening few years is that those luxury goods companies have put the prices up even further. So the shoe on which mine is based, which is the biggest company, which is now owned by Prada, those shoes, they now sell them for 900 pounds, I think 925, and they're identical. It's the same leather, the same boxes, the same laces made in a factory, you know, a mile apart. And how much do you sell your equivalent for? Uh, 220. Right. Okay. So quite a considerable saving there. Yeah. And so that's how it started. But really that was almost a test case for your e-commerce listeners. Obviously selling shoes that last 10 years is not a great business. 
because <laughs> once you've sold someone a pair of shoes, that's it. You don't hear from them for maybe even 20 years because they can be resold. But it's more the principles, really, that Apostle sort of stands for, if you like. It's the idea that we should just do the bestseller in a category. And by doing that, we can do luxury for less. You know, So I think the other thing that's changed over the last few years, the luxury goods companies have done an incredible job of persuading everyone that the only way that you can get quality is to pay for luxury. And so the market has just completely split to, for want of a better term, cheap junk, fast fashion. And that's fine if that's sort of what you're into. But there's there's very little in the middle ground because the people who used to be in the middle recognized that they could probably push price a little bit. And most people equate price with quality because, you know, absent any other information, it often is. And so they just realized they could get away with pushing up the price. And you take that extra profit or revenue and you spend it all on marketing, then you can you know, continue that illusion for a long time. So now you've branched out into shirts as well, did you say? Yeah, so shirts, white shirts. Again, it's a similar sort of industry dynamic in that the bestseller is a white shirt. And yet, if you went into or onto a website or into a, a shop on German Street, you'd be confronted by all sorts of crazy products, every color of the rainbow in every shape and size. And there's a damn good chance that you're going in to buy a white shirt. You know, it's about two thirds of the market. And so I can just do that for less because the best seller in any category, this is one of the things I've learned from my career. Um, it seems to hold true for almost all industries. They, most companies or industries have a best selling product and that is the cash cow. You know, that is all the profit of the whole industry typically. And that has huge longevity, normally stays the course for years and years. And the profits from that tend to be used, sort of recycled to pay for everything else, to subsidize everything else in effect. So if you're buying the most, most popular items, then you're subsidizing everyone who's buying all the other stuff. So I think if we're thinking about it from sort of an e-commerce seller's point of view, in terms of we always talk about lifetime value of the customer, and you're saying that on average, your shoes last 10, 20 years, and therefore customers are going to buy them once and then probably not come back for another pair. I suppose that that's the, maybe the downside of only having that one best-selling shoe. If you had some other shoes that could complement that, you could maybe increase the profits. Have you ever thought about that? Or is that why there's more sort of shirts and things coming? Exactly that. So it starts with shoes, then shirts, and the natural extension is just into other category killers, if you like, other staples. So one of the core premises of the business is that I think the fashion industry is broken. I think most people would probably agree with that. And certainly for men's fashion, because the whole industry has been set up to follow the female model. So the apparel industry is about 80% female, 20% male, and the same people work in the same industry. And they sort of apply the same model to the men's side. And the reality is men just don't, we don't shop the same. We don't think the same. So you and I have never met yeah. but I dare say that we could probably swap wardrobes and nobody would notice. And yet if we went into a store, we'd be bombarded with all sorts of stuff that neither of us would ever wear. As an anecdote, I had an interesting meeting, sort of quite a formative meeting with the founder of Superdry, and, you know, it was in a bank setting. So around a, a great big boardroom table. And everyone was wearing a navy suit and a white shirt, you know, and the chief exec of the company was dressed casually, so he was wearing a navy jumper. And then they present all the pictures of the stores and all of the products and, and all, and it's just, you know, it's like an explosion in a paint factory. And the chief exec actually, actually explained, he said, when you go into the store, you're confronted with that big table 
as you cross the threshold. That's their sort of most important real estate. And on that, you'll typically have jumpers, for example, in every color of the rainbow. And the company know full well that blokes will only buy gray and navy. But you have to have all of those other colors there to make it look interesting. Otherwise, people would just leave the store. We need to think, we need to be led to believe that we could be making a cooler choice. And we could buy an orange jumper if we wanted to, because we're cool enough to pull it off. But on this occasion, I'm just going to buy another navy one. That's just a quirk of the fashion industry. And it's the reason that all of this junk gets invented every year and then ends up in the sale and then in TK Maxx and then in landfill or, you know, on a beach in Ghana getting washed into the sea. And it's just, it's depressing and it's not necessary. Do you think it's different for online in terms of like when you're thinking about that shop, so you go into that storefront and you've got your gray and your black jumper, but then you've got all the other colors, the rainbow, but you've got quite a wide like point of view as a customer going into there, haven't you? So your eyes can quickly scan lots of items. Whereas on a website, they've only got a limited amount of space to be able to show you those items. So do you think that stores online are different to the way they are in, in store? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you go onto a store online, then normally they're quite good at guessing or using cookies and so on to figure out what you're in the market for. And they'll, they'll serve you that. And it doesn't matter so much that a website is boring and is just selling you what you want to buy. But if you just went into a huge store and it was full of white shirts, it just wouldn't quite work. So I think, yeah, I think online e-commerce is different you know, and it doesn't need to follow the same rules. And so you can just focus on, on selling the best sellers. That's at least my hope. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose that's what you're trying to achieve there is to take just the best selling products from each of the categories and then remove the luxury price tag and stack them all against each other. So I suppose you can eventually have a well-dressed gentleman who has a whole apostle kit. Very, very good. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the plan. So, you know, if you think through your think through your wardrobe, what, what would I like to do next? I'd like to do chinos because... Like I say, there's, you and I haven't met, but there's a, a damn good chance that you'd probably own a few pairs of navy chinos. And yet, you know, if you went to the store, they'd be available in every color in the rainbow. Same with jumpers. And so, yeah, it, it almost becomes the sort of professional services uniform, really. Bearing in mind, this is very much for white-collar workers, you know, people who wear formal work. And yeah, so we can, we can kit you out in all of it in the fullness of time. The entire model, if you peel it back, there's an adage that, really value is created by businesses by aggregating demand. So you end up with a cohort of people who all believe the same thing or at least aligned. And so in the fullness of time, what I hope a possible becomes is like a buyer's club. You know, I will have thousands, hopefully tens of thousands of customers who all sort of share the same belief and we can aggregate our demand and we can buy anything. So we'll start with shirts and shoes and jumpers and, and so on. But actually we can aggregate our demand and get really good deals on on whatever we want. I was just going to say, so is that how you can afford to offer the luxury products without the luxury price tag is through aggregated deals, is through you're taking that one best-selling shoe and you are buying it at scale? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so especially with the shirt. I mean, that's that's retail full stop, isn't it? It's, you buy wholesale and sell retail and I, I get cheaper shirts because I'm buying thousands of them. So that is the model of a retailer. And what kills businesses, I think, is... It's incrementalism, effectively. There's always a good reason. If you've got lots of fixed costs, lots of staff, lots of designers, lots of shops, lots of marketing people, they always want something new to do. So you might as well come up with a new product. You might as well come up with a cool new twist on an old-fashioned, etc. And each of those might drive a little bit of incremental sales. 
which is fine if, if all you look at is the sales line. But actually, what really matters is return on capital. And this we're getting a bit wonkish here in the real banking terms. But profitability is also dependent on how fast you turn your stock. You might well have, you know, red checked shirts, you know, and you might make them for X and sell them for 5X. But if you only, if you've got millions of them in your warehouse and you only sell a couple a week, then that's not a profitable enterprise. You know, it's, it's profitable on paper, but actually it's just tying up so much cash. And then actually, whoops-a-daisy, if those don't sell, then you've got to discount them and sell them through TK Maxx, et cetera. So it's that focus that means that you can have a much lower gross margin. And this isn't, you know, I haven't invented anything here. This is the Costco model, if you like. You know, it's just add a margin that's not greedy, but try and sell as quickly as possible, rather than add the biggest margin you can get away with, which seems to be the model of most companies, and then use that extra profit to market the product to death and persuade people and chase them around the internet and give them special offers and so on. That only works if you're only doing the bestseller. If I give another example, another big meeting we always used to have, we used to be brokers to Domino's Pizza. And we would have big meetings, again, in the boardroom, dozens of people, maybe 50 people in the room. And it was always, the reason there were 50 people in the room, it was always well attended because they bought free pizzas. And the first thing they do is tell us about what they call NPD, new product development, which is their new menu items. Yeah, so they'd always be coming up with some crazy new pizza, you know, chicken tikka with a drizzle and a stuffed crust and all the rest of it. And whilst they were talking about that, we'd all be like scavenging through these boxes, trying to maintain some sense of professionalism, but basically looking for the pepperoni because everyone just wants pepperoni. <laughs> and so they're coming up with new stuff all the time, but everyone just wants the, the best seller. And I, I think that extends almost all industries. It's like menu filling, isn't it? It's like if you went at a pizza hut and they only had margarita and pepperoni, you would be like, well, what do you mean? What else can I get? So it is exactly like you say, when we talked about the super dry analogy there, that there is a lot of jumpers to choose from. We all know you're going to choose the black or the gray one, but we make you think you're making a choice by putting all these other ones there. So it's like you flip that on its head. So it's quite a cool model, actually. And I think that the other thing that I think about this is that me personally, when I buy clothes, if I find something that I like, like a t-shirt or something like that, and I like the way it fits. And so I'll, I'll buy three or four in exactly the same color and I'll just hide them in my wardrobe because I know that eventually they'll wear out and I'll, I'll want that t-shirt again, so I may as well keep it. And if they do it in black as well, I'll buy it in black as well. The same with chinos. I'll buy me gray ones and then I'll buy me black ones. Like That's how I shop. Yeah, I mean, I can only congratulate you there because you're much more organized than I am. So that's you've hit on another key key premise of the business, which is exactly that. We're just, we're annuity shoppers. So again, if I use another meeting I had, which was formative, I met the founder of Ted Baker, a chap called Ray Kelvin. They did quite a lot of menswear and they'd always get called out on that sort of, why are you bothering basically? Because it's such a small market. And he said, exactly as you just described, he said, men are hopeless customers. It's a small market, but actually they're really, really loyal. And if they decide they like something from you, they'll just come back and they'll buy it again and again and again. And he described them as annuity shoppers. And so, you know, in our e-commerce parlance, that's lifetime value. Once you hook a customer and you don't disappoint them, they'll just keep coming back and buying the same thing again and again and again. You know, I used to be a TM Lewin customer, not anymore, but I probably bought 10, 12 shirts a year from them every year for a decade, you know, and you had to buy that many because they were garbage and they just fell apart. But you know, they'd fluff you in with a sort of four for a hundred deal and you just had to buy four and you just kept going, you know, and it's slightly heartbreaking, but we all did it. 
And yes, go back to your shopping style. That is exactly the way. And that's, I think, the other biggest frustration for men is that we we go shopping, we find something we like, it's great, and then we go back to try and buy it again, and it's changed. You know, they've made it cheaper, they've value engineered it, they've they've, they've sort of cut corners slightly, or they've changed it entirely. And and you wish we'd done what you just described, you know, and bought six pairs, and that was it. It's sorted. Um, but but invariably, you don't do that. Or or the other thing is they've put the price up. You know, you go back, and it's just outrageously expensive so we've all got sort of memories of products that we you know loved you know i had a i had a pair of chinos that were just fantastic they were from ralph Lauren. they were bomb proof they you know seemed to last forever but good luck finding a replacement and then you go and switch brands and they were okay for a while and then i bought another pair and they were just much lower quality you know just really badly put together and so you all we i don't know if lazy is the right word i describe myself as a lazy shopper but Again, back to the the way the industry's set up to be sort of following the female model. I think most blokes just aren't interested. You know, we want to buy really good, really high quality staples. We do care about, you know, quality and how we look and we want to look great, but we don't want to waste endless hours, you know, shopping. We just like to be able to buy really good items and, and know that we're reliably going to be able to get them again and we're paying a, a fair price for them. And so I've read that you recently opted out of Black Friday, Cyber Monday deals and in general that you don't really run promotions. And do you think that is also to do with this sort of like male versus female way of shopping? Because I know that my wife, for example, she's drawn in by red tickets, 70% off, only today, stuff like that. But for me, it's like, I know what I want. I'll buy it when I want it. I don't need a sale to draw me in because I'm not looking for anything particularly out of that sale. I'm looking for something when I'm looking for it and I'll go and buy it from the place that I always have done. So is it is it to that or is it something else? Yeah, no, so it's 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 almost exactly to that. You've nailed it. I think, again, our behavior is just different and we're put through the same machine that, um, you know, the fashion industry runs on. I think also there's an element of what you just said. So, you know, if I need something, I'll buy it. And if I don't, I'd rather not, no matter how flashy the promo is. But I think it actually goes a bit deeper than that. I think we all now, as consumers, in our hearts, we recognize most of it's nonsense, isn't it? It's just, it's fake. It's false promotion. You know, there's enough articles out there saying that they've done investigations and they found these products were available cheaper, you know, at some point in the last however many months. It's just, it's not right. And then also with discounting generally, all it says to me as a consumer is that that's sort of the right price for it. You know, and so whoops, if you ever made the mistake of paying full price, we'll sort of more fool you. And I, I hate that idea. You know, I think that's totally disingenuous sort of trying to fluff people in. And yeah, if you if you ever accidentally paid the full price for it, then uh, well, we've just made a super normal profit. I just, I think people are starting to see through it. And it's just the other thing is that it's relentlessly driving consumption. So obviously the whole industry is is set up that it has to grow. And I think we're all more aware of the fact that that's just, <laughs> you know, killing us all and killing the planet. And I, I certainly didn't set a posse up on any sort of eco agenda with a sustainability bent, but it is, I guess, naturally that because if we can buy better quality items, then they last longer and therefore we don't have to buy quite so many of them. And if we only buy the best selling staples, then, you know, we have smaller wardrobes, less wardrobe churn, less waste basically. But of course the fashion industry, like most industries can't admit to that, you know, so they have to sort of try and fool us with the idea that they've made something out of recycled milk bottles or you know sustainable this that and the other i'm sure deep down we all recognize that that's just nonsense 
And the only sustainable thing we can really do is to just buy less. And then the, the problem there is that we'd like to buy less and we'd like to buy higher quality items, but they're just so expensive you know, because they've just been marked up because companies know that they can get away with it. I think it's the same in the sort of electronics market as well, isn't it? It's like things used to last longer, things were repairable. That if something broke down, you would take it to an electronics repair shop and they would fix it and you would continue using that same thing. Nowadays, it's very much you buy the latest piece of tech, you expect that it's only going to last maximum two years, and then after that, it'll be out of date. There's no point in repairing it, so we don't even make it so that it's repairable. Everything is sealed unit and the battery's unremovable and stuff like that. And so I think that you're right. It is like it's just taking consumerism to too high a level and it is damaging the planet. Another thing that's just pervasive in, in all industries is value engineering. All companies are trying, once the accountants get involved, they're trying to sort of boost their margins. And there's always somebody who will come along and tell you that they can make your product cheaper and that no one will notice. So it was a really interesting exercise for me making the shirt and it took two years because I was able to say yes to everything. You know, I just wanted the best possible shirt that anyone's ever had. And so you're always confronted with options. You know, you can do it the most expensive way or a slightly cheaper way. You can use slightly cheaper fabric. You can use cheaper buttons. But I just said yes to the most expensive option of everything and the construction as well, because I genuinely want the shirt to be the best it can be. And each of those decisions are tiny cost, absolutely tiny, to have mother of pearl buttons, which are you know a natural product rather than plastic. I can't remember, but it probably costs an extra 50 pence, something like that. And to use a much nicer fabric, the fabric is the expensive bit that, you know, there's, there's nowhere to hide there. But single needle stitching, rather than tram lines, they go up and down once in each direction. Obviously that takes twice as long, but it's a much better way of constructing a shirt. Again, that probably costs another 20 pence. And the factory couldn't believe it. You know, they were constantly coming back to me and saying, we can make this cheaper. You know, what about this? Do you want to cut this corner? Because obviously that's the way the industry is set up. I just didn't want to do it that way. And so what you end up with is a, is a really good product that hopefully lasts. And yeah, therefore we don't need to buy quite so many. How much do you sell your shirts for? 60 pounds. The, the, the sort of advert, if you like, that I, I never feel quite comfortable saying, as I said, it all comes down to the fabric, you know, and so I, I use fabric from an Italian mill and I know that two other shirt makers on German street use the same fabric in their shirts and they sell them for 250 pounds. So really you've got nowhere to hide with the fabric. That's the quality. And then you can build a shirt as well as possible, but yeah, you, you have to use the best fabric possible. And I do. And so then it just comes down to a question of gross margin. You know, we both probably make our shirts for about 25 pounds. And I sell mine for 60 and they sell those for 250. But I haven't got a shop on German Street. I haven't got linen jackets and tweed trousers and so on to subsidize. I don't sell monogram slippers. And 25 other color shirts that you have to subsidize. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I haven't got a royal warrant. Whether or not that's a good thing, I'd question. I'm not particularly motivated to shop at the same place as Prince Andrew, but some people are. So there's all those trappings that need to be paid for. If you avoid that, then that's great. But yeah, the, sorry, the original point you were talking about was value engineering, basically, which we see in in all industries. And yeah, there, there will always be somebody who comes to you and says they can do it cheaper. Yeah, And I don't know if you've noticed with clothes you've bought, you just go back and buy the same thing and it's not as good because somebody said that they can do it cheaper. So the shirts, some of the shirts that you might buy, you find they get shorter. You know, they don't stay tucked in quite so well as a formal shirt. And obviously somebody said, well, we could shave an inch off the bottom and no one would notice. 
And that reminds me of another story from the city. Um, I met the, the founder of Pizza Express back in the day, you know, and they grew that 300 restaurants. And he said, you'll always get somebody coming to you and saying they can do something cheaper, you know, cheaper flour, cheaper olive oil, cheaper tomatoes. And each one of those decisions probably makes sense on its own. You make two pizzas side by side, one with the cheaper flour, and no one can tell the difference. But if you make all of those incremental decisions, his punchline was, one day you'll wake up and you'll be Bella Italia. So just a hopeless dead restaurant, you know, that nobody wants to go to. And, and each of those decisions on their own probably made sense, but in aggregate, you just end up with a, a much worse product. And that's the other reason. So we, we blokes just won't tolerate that. I, I, like we were talking about earlier, we're annuity shoppers until something upsets us and then we just leave. So the most important aspect of any business, but especially selling to men, is obviously acquiring customers is very difficult, and very expensive, and you just must not let them down. You can't cheat them. You've got to treat them with the utmost respect, basically, and give them exactly what they expect, and then they'll stay with you for a long time. But if you upset them and you try and cut corners, then that's it. It's game over. So if you're not using promotions or Black Friday deals or anything like that to acquire customers, how do you get the customer in the door initially? I mean, I know you've got like a, a potentially long lifetime value. And as you bring out more and more products in your range, you'll be able to sell them to those loyal customers that you've been keeping happy all that time. But how do you get them in the door to begin with? So this is the tricky thing. So it's a double-edged sword selling to men. Obviously, we're speaking in horrible generalities here and, you know, stereotypes. So forgive me for that. Blokes are great customers once you've got them, because as long as you don't disappointment, they'll keep coming back and they'll keep buying and so on. So they're hugely valuable in terms of lifetime value, but acquiring them is that much more difficult because we don't talk about clothes. You know, I don't say to you, oh my God, I love your shirt. Where did you get it from? You know, and you're not going to go and tell people, oh, I just found this great company and they make really, you know, really cool shirts. We just, we just don't do that. Yeah. And so that sort of viral marketing word of mouth, that doesn't work. Same with social media. You know, I am very, very unlikely to post on Instagram that I've just got a new shirt and, you know, I'm really excited about it. So that really doesn't work. We're all sort of familiar now with the virality, you know, the R number, if you like. And I think for men, that's just lower. You know, we just don't talk about these things. And so I've almost got to satisfy myself that it can and will grow slowly, but it's sort of quality growth rather than fast growth. Because all you're doing in promoting marketing is speeding up time. The business grows naturally. It has a natural growth rate because people buy more shirts and come back and buy other products and tell their friends. And, you know, so that does happen. And you're effectively, you're juicing that growth by spending money on marketing. And so I do, I do do that. I spend money on Google. I don't spend anything on Facebook yet, but I'm slowly coming around to the conclusion that I will have to. And you can reward your customers for referring. I think that's quite powerful. Yeah, definitely. I know that if I, I'm going to go back to a place and buy more and more stuff over time, then I think that if they said to me, if you're a, for a customer you can have £50 to spend in store sort of thing, then yeah, that's worth it for me. And the other thing I'm just thinking out loud here, this is my entrepreneur brain going, going uh, into motion here. What about if you thought about other things that men do typically buy, like any subscriptions or anything like I used to get coffee capsules on subscription that were like quite nice upmarket coffee capsules that like went into my normal machine, but they weren't made by the machine manufacturer. What about if, just thinking outside the box, yeah, put a sample of your material in with those, get, get in with one of those companies, see if you can do something like that to like prove to them, like look, feel the feel of this material. It's much better than any shirt you've probably ever worn. Come in and try it sort of thing. That's funnily enough, very timely. That's one of the things I am exploring now is sort of co-branding 
you know, inserts, things like that. I'm basically desperate to try all sorts of things other than just giving lots and lots of money to Mark Zuckerberg because that's, you know, that is the tried and tested way. And if I had external shareholders who were pushing me for growth, then that would be, that's what most e-commerce businesses do. But it's an addictive drug paying for that growth. And it's quite difficult to get off is what I've been warned by many other, you know, e-commerce company owners. Yeah. So there are all sorts of other ways. And also I've got a few contacts that, um, own businesses that are apparel businesses, but for technical clothing, you know, so cycling and running and so on. And I could quite happily team up with them because I think that works quite well because I almost see it that people can save money by buying my stuff. And then the money you save on that, you can spend on interesting technical stuff. So your hobbies, skiing, cycling, running, etc. Because I think those companies, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time bashing e-commerce here. Those companies are justified in charging higher prices. Yeah, because they spend a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort on product innovation, new materials, et cetera. And so that is worthwhile. Their products are changing and that requires R&D, if you like, and therefore they should be able to charge a bit more for it. The guys riding in the Tour de France now are in very different kit to the guys riding in the Tour de France 100 years ago. You know, back then they were wearing woolly jumpers. Yeah, so that makes a difference. Whereas men in business are wearing the exact same shirts that they were a hundred years ago. So there's, there's no, and the shoes haven't changed for years. So, so I can't justify charging higher prices because I need that money for R and D, but those other cool companies can, you know, so they're, they're entirely justified. So I can consciously sort of pair up with those guys. And I don't think that jars with the approach. No, I think that's quite a smart approach actually, um, in terms of pairing up with people, like that. Um, I know that my my dad's a keen cyclist. He's ex sort of office worker as well. So I guess that he fits into both where he would be spending good money on his cycling kit, but he'd also be spending good money on his suits and shirts that he would wear for work sort of thing. So I think they would go quite well together. You're right. Uh, interestingly, my dad actually cycles um, with a club every Saturday and Sunday, and he cycles with a guy who owns 30% of Endura. Yeah, so that sort of fits in nicely with this next question, which is, do you think the bigger the business is, the more they waste on unnecessarily complicated e-commerce platforms, i.e. you are saying that everything should be streamlined, that you take the best selling products, that you only sell those, that you sell them to a very niche market that you know well and they can trust you once they become a customer. Do you think that people then start to expand out and do stuff on like Amazon and they do TikTok shop and do you think, is that the wrong approach for this type of business? I'm not sure about wrong. So there are many different ways to grow and it's not for me to say I'm doing it right and anyone else is doing it wrong. I'm working hard to serve my customers, but other people shop in very different ways. I think the main premise for our, our business is simplicity. Keep it simple. And that I think helps my small brain to cope with it. And as you start to grow and you take in external investors and so on, obviously the, your feet are held to the fire to grow faster. I don't have external investors, to be clear. And so you're always going to be presented with lots of new opportunities and lots of new ways to do it. And like bureaucracies, they just sort of tend to expand. So I think that's quite dangerous, trying to be everywhere all at once, you know, trying to be big on all channels, etc. To your listeners, anyone who's starting out, the advice I was given, which seems to have worked, is just to focus on one channel, you know, one or two. If, if I tried, to, I don't do TikTok, for example, because it's not really in my sort of wheelhouse, if you call it that, you know, I might eventually, or I might more likely pay someone else to do it. But if I tried to do everything, I'll just do them all badly. So I think it's be true to yourself in that sense. The vast majority of my stuff comes from email. 
I mean, that's a, a quirk of me and a quirk of history and a quirk of working in professional services, I guess. But I, I think that works. It's different for every business, isn't it? So, you know, some businesses, if you're, you, you go where your customers are, if your customers are on TikTok, then great. And that's what I'm thinking about for specifically your business that like, if we put these luxury shirts and shoes on Amazon, they might not do as well as what they would do on your own website where you can truly tell the story. I think I'm saying the difference here is that with your product, it is very much the story, isn't it? It's that you are spending this extra 50 pence on these buttons. You are spending the extra 20 pence on the single lane stitching. You are using that material from the Italian mill. All of that needs to come through in order for the customer to feel the true value and understand that they are getting a product that others are selling for 950 and now they're paying 220 sort of thing. So I think that it is, in my eyes, just to sort of sum it up for me here, it is with your business, you need to be thinking about what is the best channel to reach specifically my audience. And I think in your case, it is direct to consumer through your own website. Yeah. And, and simply the economics don't work via any other channel for me. So my gross margin is only 30% and Amazon's fees are 30%. So I just wouldn't be able to do it. The only way I'd be able to do it is to just charge more. And I don't think that's helpful. So that's how that's how so many businesses do grow on those channels is they just charge more. My shirt's 60 pounds and I could sell it for 100 and then I've got 40 pounds to play with. Yeah, and I could use that as marketing spend and I could certainly attract loads and loads of customers if I spent 40 quid per customer acquisition on Facebook. Grow like a weed, but I don't think that's a good customer outcome really. I think, you know, my customers would then get a an expensive shirt, which is lots and lots of people tell me I should charge more for a shirt. And naturally, I'm just inclined to want to charge less because the price is the advert. I don't want to have to chase people around the internet trying to persuade them to buy it again. I want them to buy one and that's it. That decision's made and they'll just buy it again and again and again. And I see that from my customers. So once people are in the system and once people are bought into the idea, they'll just keep buying. And I've garnered their trust so that if I then introduce another product, there's a bloody good chance they'll buy that too. In a sense, that's the long game. Of course, I could hook people in by yeah, charging more and spending lots on advertising. For whatever reason, that doesn't sit well with me, so I don't. I think that's quite short-sighted as well as an approach if you're just wanting to spend more, to charge more, to be able to spend more to acquire a customer initially. You might acquire that customer, but I think the difference here is that you're providing such exceptional value for money when they then do come in the door and they buy your shirt or shoes and they realize that this is actually on par with the quality of some much, much more expensive brands. And the only difference here is that it doesn't have that brand logo. And therefore, I'm getting all of the quality without the additional cost. So that, in my mind, is going to then drive a higher lifetime value, which in principle is the golden nugget. You're going to make more profit over the long run. So it is you're playing the long game rather than just thinking, I'll up my price, I'll get some more money to spend on marketing, I'll catch them early on, but then they're not going to come back if they feel like they've overpaid. I think it's quite a smart play. Yeah, exactly. You've just written my marketing, basically. That's exactly right. That's exactly the approach. Because... The benefit, and again, I would encourage you know anyone starting out, that's the benefit of bootstrapping it, effectively. You don't have those external stakeholders, venture capitalists or whatever, angel investors who are hell-bent on you growing sales 100% a year, you know, and you have to hit those targets and you have to spend that money. Because you can. You can grow your top line at any speed you like. You know, literally pick a number, just purely based on how much money you want to give to Facebook. See the mattress companies for details, you know, all of Casper and Eve and all of these guys, they all did exactly that. And they burnt brightly for a while and, and now they're nowhere. 
Okay, so flipping it on its head a little bit here then. So how do you use automation to simplify your operations? Do you use any automation? I largely outsource everything. So that's the other amazing thing about this whole world, e-commerce. The infrastructure in place is absolutely extraordinary. You can set up a business in a day. You know, Shopify is amazing. I use that as my front end. It's all integrated into a third-party logistics company, a company called OCF, who are great. Shout out to those guys, Mark and Adam. And they're expert in everything that I'm not. So I leave all of that to them. They're, they're so helpful. They're great. And so all of that just happens automatically. I use Klaviyo for email. That seems like a pretty familiar stack for most people. I'm often amazed, because lots of people disclose their tech stack, just how many different things people are using. I guess I, mine's a very simple business, so I'm only selling you know two products, so I don't need to have too many of those things involved. But yeah, the, the world is just set up to make it all so easy. I think it's, it's incredible, really. You, you think about the, the barriers to entry for launching a, a business, an apparel company, 30 years ago. You just need huge amounts of capital. You know, you'd have to sign a 25-year lease. You'd have to employ people, pay their pension contributions and holiday and all the rest of it. And now you don't need any of that. You, you can you can just do it all. The problem, of course, with that is that that means that everyone's doing it. I'd just bring it back to the product, really. It's all about the product. You can, for a while, you can get a mediocre product and you can market the hell out of it and grow, but that doesn't work for very long. You have to have a really good product because the USP of a business is not AI chatbot or any of that sort of stuff. It's the product, really. And I think an awful lot of the companies that you see now that'll be sort of pestering you on your various media channels, they're basically marketing companies. You know, they're media agencies and what they're good at is selling. And it almost doesn't matter what they sell. You know, they could be selling jewelry or candles or slippers or loungewear or Japanese knives or, you know, whatever's the cool thing at the moment. But their core competence, if you like, is marketing. You know, they're really good at that. They're really good at figuring out how to sell stuff to you. And maybe that works business because you then move on to the next category. But uh, it's a very different approach. I call those marketing-led. Link my books, we are product-led. So we think that if we create a really good product that does exactly what it says on the tin and that we can get enough people to try it, then that will naturally grow a bit like what your business is doing now. So I think you do sort of have two paths, don't you? You've got marketing-led, which is spending loads of money on making something sound amazing and then it doesn't really matter what the product is because your marketing is so good. That's, again, in my eyes, quite short-sighted because eventually your customer is going to become privy to that actually this product is not as good as some of these other products that are out there that just don't shout about them quite as much. And then you've got the product-led people who are developing products based on people's problems. And I think that that's where you and I are quite similar in terms of Link My Books and Apostle. I think that we are doing that as a product-led business. And I think those will win long-term. Yeah, I, well, I hope so. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a slower way to grow, isn't it? And if you've got external stakeholders, then perhaps you're under pressure to grow faster. But if you don't, then you can just grow slowly and be and be true to your own values, if you like. And also, I think almost feels like it's better for the customer as well with the product-led approach, because I think if you do go down that marketing route and you do have investors that you have to please, they want you to bring on as many new users or bring in as many new customers as you can in a short period of time. And then you do end up having to cut corners and spend more time and focus on doing that rather than making the product itself better. And I just I feel like that's not quite the right approach. Okay, so a few closing questions here. So this is totally flipping it on its head here. So if you're going to go out 
for coffee. Who would you like to take out for coffee from the e-commerce world in order to rack their brains? This can be like big names. Like I know that Ben Leonard talked about Ezra Firestone, the Shopify guy. Can be people like that, or it could be people who you know personally, who you think they're really smart in e-commerce. I want to have a chat with them. Let's name some names. Yeah, so top of my list would be David Hyatt from Hyatt Denim. I don't know if you you know those guys. It's a husband and wife team, and they make jeans in West Wales. I'm a customer, but they also give a huge amount back in terms of just information, teachings. They run a, a series of lectures called the Do Lectures, and they started Howie's, which you might know back in the day. It was like a skateboarding brand, but they're all about do one thing well. Yeah, so just do product, one product. So, so you know you can understand why I like these guys. You know they're formative in in me thinking about how to run my business. Um, and so they just do jeans. You know they just really, really, really high quality jeans, made in Wales. I'm Welsh, so I'm naturally biased towards that. And yeah, they're not the biggest company in the world, but I mean, you might make the case that they're the best when it comes to doing what they do. And they're quite supportive of other businesses that do one thing well. And I like to hope that I fall into that category. So yeah, I like their approach. That sounds like a good partnership there, right there. Like, Yeah, I mean, we're, we're not in partnership. I, ha I have done one of their courses, which was interesting. Yeah, because they do a lot of sort of teaching as well. Painter jackets would be another one. They're quite small and they just do jackets, but um, like chore jackets, but they only make them infrequently, you know, three or four batches a year. And I quite like that approach as well. You know, back to what we were saying about holding inventory and that being having fast stock turn is is really important as well as profitability. So their business is the perfect example of that because people pay in advance. They aggregate those orders and then they make you a jacket. And I quite like that. In the fullness of time, that's as I expand, that's how I'll do it as well. So for example, I'm about to launch a blue shirt, but I'll only sell those to people who are already customers and I'll only do it once a year. Yeah, so once a year I'll sell blue shirts and once a year I'll sell pink shirts. But as a special, as a one-off, only to customers who already are customers and therefore they know their size because what kills businesses like mine is returns. And because that, that round trip is very expensive. But if you're in the system and you're a believer, if you like, for want of a better term, and you've, you've bought into the model, you've bought into the approach, you've got a shirt, you love it, it fits, then of course you're going to say yes if I offer it in another color because you trust me that it's going to be of equally good quality and so i can do that and that means that i haven't got a warehouse full of pink shirts and blue shirts all the time i can just do it as a one-off yeah it's almost like crowdfunding a new product line isn't it exactly it's that back to the point i was making about aggregation of demand that's you know what really matters is that i've got thousands of customers and hopefully tens of thousands in the in the fullness of time who you know we can ag aggregate our buying power and and get really good deals basically yeah, so they, they're like an extreme version of that. Yeah, and I, th I think that's quite a nice smart model. And it probably doesn't scale. That's why you don't see that model anywhere else, because it, it won't grow massive. You know, it won't be huge, but it's perfectly good. It's good for the customers. It's good for the planet. So I think that's a nice alternative approach. Okay, last question for you then. How should the audience get in touch with you if they've got any follow-up questions? And more importantly, what's the details of the website so they can go and have a look at your shirts and shoes? So the, as I've described, it's all very old fashioned. So you can just send me an email. Yeah. So it's mark at apostlelondon.com. The website is apostlelondon.com. 
the best way to definitely get hold of me is to buy a shirt because then you'll you'll get an email from me and you can reply to that. But yeah, in lieu of that, just send me an email. It is it's very deliberately old fashioned, but you know, as discussed, most of my customers are bankers, brokers, lawyers, accountants, management consultants. They're people who frankly spend most of their day sending emails and responding to emails. So that seems to be the channel. I'm on LinkedIn as well. I occasionally post things on that. So yeah, we can connect there. But email's the cleanest way because LinkedIn's full of social media gurus trying to sell to you. So you get sort of caught up in the noise there. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Mark. It's been quite a journey and insight. I think that we have a lot in common between our two businesses, especially on the product-led approach. I'm sure our paths will cross at some point in the future. I may well have a little look for a shirt now as well. So enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Daniel. Enjoyed that. Thank you. The e-commerce profitability show is brought to you by Link My Books. To find out more about Link My Books and how to accurately automate your e-commerce bookkeeping to ensure profitable growth, visit linkmybooks.com and then make sure to search for e-commerce profitability in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Link My Books, thanks for listening.